we're just kind of mushing along and the trees are at the end of the runway and they're getting bigger and they're getting bigger and they're getting bigger and the trees are still above us, but we're going through them now and we lived. So it's pretty wild. It was, it was one of the most adrenaline pumping moments of my entire life. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 199, The Adventure of Flight with Chris Palmer. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by BiotropicLabs.com, custom formulators and sports performance supplements for active people like you. Designed for everyone from weekend warriors and outdoor enthusiasts to high-level athletes, if your body moves, you need Biotropic. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Today on the line with me is Chris Palmer. Chris, I caught up with to talk to me about some flying. Um, one of the, the reasons I found Chris is because of a, a pretty good video of a takeoff that went a little a little awry. And uh, we'll hopefully talk about that a little bit later. But um, it made me think, you know, this is probably a good guy to, uh, to talk about. He does some, some neat things in the aviation industry, and I think you guys will get a kick out of it. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. And I absolutely love that you guys have this adventure thing connected to everything you do, because at the core of flying, I think that's what it is. I think if you aren't seeking an adventure, not necessarily seeking danger, but if you're not seeking an adventure in flying, then you're not doing it right. So I'm excited to be able to talk about that a little bit today. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, our whole thing is to inspire people to get out there and try new aspects of adventure. And, you know, to us, it's a pretty loose term. You know, adventure is just something that takes you out of your element. You know, for some people, adventure could be, you know, a scary you know, bicycle trip down, the, you know, a city street or something. But, you know, for others, obviously, it's climbing Mount Everest or jumping out of an airplane. So I think adventure is very relative is what I'm saying. And, and it can mean a lot of different things to to everyone. So let's talk about the adventure of flight. I've always been intrigued with flying. I think I was telling you uh, before the the interview that I went so far as to start taking uh, flight lessons and then needed to back out of it because uh, I had a, a suspicion I was going to get laid off that that at that point in my life. And I did. So it was a good decision. But I really do miss being out there in the plane and, and controlling it myself and, and getting ready to take off and going through that. Um so how is it you got into to flying? Have you been doing this as a lifelong thing? Is it a pretty recent thing? What kicked off your flight career? I think overall, it's been a lifelong thing. You know, I, I look back to boyhood when I couldn't help but look up at the airplanes overhead. I think that's a typical story for, for young boys where they recognize machines, right? They recognize machines and guns and danger and adventure and all that sort of thing. So I was always interested in airplanes. I took up an interest on uh, a modeling level. I'd model World War II airplanes. I'd eventually get into stuffing those models 
before, like as I was building them, I'd stuff them full of fireworks, right? Like firecrackers. <laughs> and then I'd create these amazing handheld VHS movies with my, uh, with the family video camera and, and just really kind of got into that. You know, I'd, I'd be modeling while I was watching these World War II documentaries on the Battle of Midway and, and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, for a couple of years, I, in my early teenage years, I kind of lost track of that lost track of that passion and, and didn't really ever recognize it as a huge passion. I guess I got into punk rock and girls a little bit too much around it 14, happens. 15. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then when I was getting a little more serious about what I was going to be doing with my life and what I wanted to do as a career, I just had an aha moment one day when I realized that my cousin, who's you know five years older than I or a little bit more, he was taking flying lessons in college and it, it suddenly dawned on me, you know, wow, I don't have to go into the military to be able to do this. And cause I actually couldn't qualify for the military cause of a medical issue. So I said, that's it right there. That's what I'm going to do. And it's pretty downhill from there. I, I really went gung ho at it. I, uh, I ended up doing all my ground school, my last year of high school and went to my first year of college and was the first guy there to get my license in my class. And uh, along the way, I also got pretty big into the gaming side of it, which is flight simulation. And I think that helped me a whole lot in in kind of being ahead of the curve. But it, it was a lot of things added kind of at the right time in my life. And then from then on out, I mean, once you got the bug and once you've done it, there's really no going back. And while I've had periods of being away from flying a little bit, I always come back to it. And, and it's also what I do for a living. You know, my, my business is surrounding aviation. So it's what I'm always enveloped in, even if I'm not actively flying as much as I used to. Yeah, it's cool. So you found a way to, uh, to exercise your passion, you know, and make money at the same time. We always, uh, hope to see that in people for sure. Right. Definitely. So I wanted to bring up uh, flight simulators. The I am not a gamer. Um, and my kids are always trying to introduce games to me, and I just I have no attention span for for video games except for flight simulators. For some reason, <laughs> you know, like I said, I just I I love aviation. So, and I'm not talking you know flight simulators where you're you know going through the sky with an F-16 and blowing things up. It's the real life you know take off and sit behind the your joystick for an hour to right. while you're you're making a pretend trip across the United States you mm -hmm. know, or something like that. Um, so with flight simulators, simulators, how can how much do they factor into real life flight? Um, and I know like professional simulators obviously do because professional pilots get trained on them. But when you come to some of the better simulators that you can get on a PC, um, how good are they or how accurate are they and how can they factor into your real flight training? Are they beneficial, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I spend a lot of time delving into the flight simulation end of things because not only did I learn a whole lot that way and, and experience flying that way when I was young, it's become even more of a thing now with millennials. You know, these are kids that are always attached to technology and they learn greatly through experience and through being there and doing that. And it, it just gets better and better. You know, the gap between the professional level of what the airlines use to accredit and train their pilots legally in a training facility there 
and what you can get on a desktop computer at home is that gap is getting smaller all the time. And now with things like the Oculus Rift and virtual reality, a lot of the drawbacks to simulators that I had experienced in the past are are going away. You know, you're never going to get the feel of flying fully because flying is a sensory exercise. You're using all six senses to um, maybe not taste. That's a little weird, but you're using all <laughs> you six. You never know. <laughs> yeah, you're using all six senses to uh, experience flight. So um, with with virtual reality and things like that, you are getting now some amazing visual cues that you didn't have before. And while you may not have a motion platform at home, it's still a very, very effective learning platform for people to use before they actually go and get their training. And there are some organizations in the professional side of training that build some pretty high fidelity simulators that are affordable for flight schools. And it's been proven that people that use a simulator um, can get their license much sooner. And the reason for that is, you know, an airplane is an expensive thing to run. 100 low lead gas, which is your typical aviation fuel, is here in Homer, it's uh, it's almost $6 a gallon. It's definitely cheaper in the lower 48, but it's expensive. It's more expensive, probably double the price of local MoGas. It's expensive to run, but when you're talking about a simulator, you're talking about basically a computer that has unlimited time you can put on it. And of course, there's some IT maintenance and things like that, but that's pretty minimal and you can learn what they do is they learn in the simulator and verify in the airplane. And we're seeing a lot of effective things happening in that arena um, in flight training right now. So it's pretty exciting. You know, I, I think people are connected to flight simulation because it's not your it's not really a game. And in fact, people that are in the flight simulator, they get offended if you call it a game because they're not your typical first person shooter gamers. But a draw to flight simulation is the same draw to actual aviation flying an airplane in that we're not just talking about kind of a one-track mind of killing someone or going and stealing jewels or whatever. We're talking about something where you have to immerse yourself and you actually have to learn a whole lot of in the sciences and in STEM as well in how to actually do this. And it, it's very invigorating that way. And I think a lot of people like that challenge. And so they gravitate, gravitate toward flight simulation. And it's the same reason why I love flying. It's one of the reasons I really love flying because it's, it just never gets old. There's always something to learn um, and something to improve. And I, I think it's the same challenge that people get from, you know, a, a, an ultra, ultra game like a flight simulator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned living in, in Homer up there in Alaska. I don't know how long you've been there, but there's got to be some some seriously beautiful, adventurous flying up there where you are. Yes, and, and this is where pilots always dream of flying. I can't brag that I'm a bush pilot or anything. I don't have enough experience up <laughs> here yet to say that I can do that sort of stuff. But it, it's interesting because I... I uh, I did most of my flying in the lower 48 so far in the western states, actually pretty near where you are. I, I grew up in Utah. That's where I learned to fly. Um, 
I was actually born in Alaska, but we left when I was 18 months old. So there's, I, I experienced all these things, learned all of these things as a pilot in the lower 48, but now I'm bringing that knowledge up here and I'm able to compare the difference between what flying was like down there and what it's like up here. And it, it's pretty eye-opening because up here you can't fake it. You know, you don't have all these big, huge, long runways everywhere where you can be sloppy in your in your control technique and just put down on the runway where you want. You you got to be on your game um, in all arenas, in being able to read the weather, in being able to flight plan, in communicating, in survival. Really, survival is a big part of flying around here. It, you know, if I fly. Five minutes out of town where I am. I am in remote area that is very, very difficult for people to walk to. So that takes into account, again, that survival stuff, um, keeping in mind search and rescue options. I often think about my ability to glide because there's so much water around where I live. Homer's right on the coast. So I think of my ability to glide if the engine were to quit. Um, so it, it's real aviation up here. Let me just say that. And I tell you, it's, it's also with the backdrop that we have, it's some of the most beautiful flying too. It's, it's very cool stuff. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, that was the thought I had. Once you get, once you get up there, I mean, you have to take aviation seriously, no matter where you're flying, obviously. Yep. But mm-hmm. once you get up there, it is a, a whole nother added element. You know, like you said, with the water and with the, the wilderness areas that you're in such close proximity to, um, that's serious. You know, you're not setting a plane down, you know, in a, in a field that happens to be near three towns, you yep. know, with services and emergency services, you know, it might take hours for somebody to actually come find you, uh, and even be reported for that matter. So yep. yeah, I, I can understand that for sure. So what is some of the, uh, what are some of the cooler things that you've seen while flying up there? So recently, um, this summer, I've been doing a lot more flying. I, I found a, a 172 to rent here, which has been a huge blessing for me. And so I've actually been getting out a whole lot more. So one of the coolest trips I did right at the beginning of the summer was we flew out of my hometown of Homer. Um, and that's spelt just like Homer Simpson. People can look that up online and, and kind of see the pictures around this area. We flew across the Cook Inlet to a place called Chinitna Bay, and we landed on a beach there. It's pretty typical here in Alaska for pilots or or aviation, really. You may start out at uh, a larger airport, a, a more established airport, but 80% of the flying is done off airport and in the bush where there's just not a lot going on. So many of the pilots here are landing in areas that aren't improved runways where you're having to evaluate the water or evaluate the beach or evaluate the glacier. I mean, these are all places people land up here. So we, uh, we headed across the Cook Inlet and we got stuck on the beach a little bit, um, but more or less made it out okay. And the airplane was <laughs> a okay. A little we, bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, had to, we had to pull the airplane down out of this soft sand that we had landed in and we had to pull it down on some rocks that were a little bit more solid. Um, not only not only because we couldn't take off in soft sand, but just to get the airplane positioned again so we could uh, so we could take off later. But our main objective was that in this area, it's very popular to see grizzly bears. Um, and in this area, you're almost guaranteed to see them if you go over there. In fact, there are state park services and, and signs over there even 
because uh, there are so many aerial tours that go over there each day. But we had gone over there. It was a friend and I and my wife, and we landed on the beach. We got stuff, got out pretty quickly, and then we hiked out into this meadow after we had gone through some trees, and there were grizzly bears there, and they're like ants. You know, you've got some big males off to the left that are kind of hanging out around each other and, and being careful, and then you've got a sow and a couple cubs on your right that the cubs are over there playing together and running around and, and then they'll stop and keep munching on the grass. And then you've got some loners out in the middle, you know, some males and females, you maybe have some siblings, little older siblings that are hanging out together, but literally you walk out into this meadow and the grizzly bears are like ants and they're just right there. But the coolest part was we had gone and we saw that and we said, okay, well, you know, this is the, this is the Eastern viewing area. Let's, let's just walk down the beach to the Western viewing area. And so we walked down the beach and, uh, we weren't seeing anything, but we turned a corner and up on this cliff, we noticed right away, just 50 feet away was a sow and her cub right on the edge of the cliff. And they were literally just right there and they were very aware of us. They, they're used to humans over there, so they're not really aggressive to humans, really. More curious than anything and careful, but they were just looking right at us, kind of sleepy, just laying there, just like, hey, we're tired. We've been running all day. We've been eating all day. We're just taking a nap here on this cliff. So we sat there for a few minutes and took pictures and took some video, and it was pretty pretty good stuff. It, it, it Those are typical... It's crazy to say, but those are typical experiences around here. You know, I I, uh, I do live streams quite often just from my Twitter channel through Periscope. Just when I go up flying, I, I often turn on a camera and talk to people as I'm going around. And just here across the bay, a 10-minute flight away, there's a glacier that I typically fly over and show people what a glacier is like. And I tell them some facts about the glacier and why the ice is blue and this and that. But right on the side of the mountain... I was flying a couple of weeks ago and here's 40 head of mountain goat, you know, and they're just right there. And that, that's just a typical thing that you experience here in Alaska. Adventure is just part of everything you do. And, uh, and you're very, you're very connected to the wildlife. You're connected to the earth up here. And although it's politically a good mix of hippies and gun wielding conservatives, it's a healthy place for everyone to live, and we all seem to coexist in relative harmony. It's it's just a really fantastic place. Obviously, people call Alaska the last frontier, and I still feel like it still has that spirit to it. So that carries over into aviation as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, that sounds awesome. I would like a little bit of that myself. You know, it gets a little bit too busy down here in the front range of Colorado for my taste. So you're making it sound pretty nice to me. Yeah. <laughs> Careful, well, we might get a few neighbors up there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it's funny. We People don't necessarily like people moving up here, but if you're determined to move up here and make it work, then you're an Alaskan, you know, <laughs> almost right away. If you can make <laughs> it work, then you deserve to be here. So yeah, right. we encourage it for sure. So, I mean, that's one experience I had at the beginning of the summer. A couple weeks ago, we, uh, I I flew myself in the 172 here and and took a couple friends again across the inlet, but to a different location. And we flew down through what's called Lake Clark Pass. And your listeners can look that up online as well. We went down through Lake Clark Pass with towering mountains on each side. 
and glaciers all around. And we flew down this river valley for, gosh, it was at least 40 minutes of the flight. And then on the other side of that, we landed in a place called Port Allsworth. And there we had, we went to the general store. It's like the only store, the only restaurant in town was this this super secluded town right on the edge of the water, right on the edge of Lake Clark, bright blue, glacier blue water with float planes all around and and stuff. And so we land at the airport there. And as soon as I landed, this this little kid on this motorcycle was racing me as I was as I was landing. I look over <laughs> and he's right there. And it was pretty funny. I actually put that video on my Instagram channel. It, it just threw me off because I've never seen anything like that before. Um, so we went to the general store there. We enjoyed a sandwich. And then we went on a hike to see this pretty uh, popular waterfall there. And that was beautiful. So that was kind of our mission to go over there, not only see the city or town, but also to see um, see that waterfall. And it ended up being a cool experience in and of itself. And kind of my the big thing I was, I was taking pictures of on that particular hike was I was taking pictures of my feet next to dozens, what seemed like dozens of different species of mushrooms. They were just everywhere along the trail. So I, I kept stopping and taking a picture of my feet next to these mushrooms. But just those cool little things that you see around that area, um, really any area you go to everywhere, everywhere in Alaska is unique, not only because you're dealing with coastline, but then you're dealing with glaciers and backcountry tundra and you're dealing with alpine, you know, you can quickly go from one type of vegetation to another and it's just so varied and, and cool stuff. So that's another recent adventure I've done. And that's apart from the regular, I guess, flight seeing tours, if you want to call them that, that I just do with my family and friends around the area, checking stuff out. But it's definitely a great way to get out and, and access these areas. And, and I'm only doing it to a certain extent. There are guys that can take their airplanes and pretty much go land anywhere and, and be next to almost anything they want. It's pretty wild. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Alaska is so big and you have such long stretches in between things that, you know, taking an airplane to go see them is almost a necessity at that point. I know, you know, a lot of Alaskans fly just because that's, some of the only ways to get around up there. Yeah, there's there's literally one north-south highway system that goes all the way from Fairbanks all the way down to where I live in Homer. It's pretty much one highway that goes all the way down, one main road. Other than that, anything to the west of that is just pretty much no roads. I mean, you'll get some access roads here and there and things, but no major, no major access, no huge public access or anything everything from then on out is aviation to get to the villages to get to the west coast to places like Nome and bethel and in some of those areas so aviation is a part of life here uh, we have the highest per capita rate for pilots here in alaska um we have the highest accident rate in aviation in alaska because it's just so common up here that people are flying all the time um and just, you know, fact after fact, this area is still so untouched. And I, I can't, I can't imagine a time in at least my lifetime where it'll be tamed. You know, we're a hundred years in to Alaska kind of starting to be settled with, with the gold rush and things. And it's still just such a remote place. 
and such an amazing place to be able to experience not only by airplane, but even if you're into kayaking or into hiking, there's just still so much to be seen and so much to be discovered. And, and while, you know, someone may have set foot on where you are, where you go on an adventure, not many people have, you know, we're not talking about Yosemite or anything like that. Um, in fact, one of the deciding factors of me moving up here was I had visited on just a family vacation, um, my, my father and I and my brother. And I was driving around Alaska, just really taking in the beauty, you know, all the wildflowers, the glaciers in the background, the clear blue skies, which does not happen all the time, by the way. It rains plenty here. But just taking in all this beauty. And I noticed these empty campgrounds everywhere. Just we drive by these campgrounds in the most pristine location I've ever seen. And there's no one there. It's just all vacant. And we're not talking like this is October or anything. This is this is prime time. This is July. And then I get home to Utah and it may have been Labor Day or something. It was a it was some weekend, but I went up to into the canyon to try to find a camping spot and it took me two and a half hours to find one camping spot in a canyon with thousands of camping locations. And so right. I'm just at that point I'm like Alaska wouldn't be like this. I, I'm tired of this. We, we should maybe think about moving. So, so that's I thought you were going to tell me the mosquitoes flew off with all the campers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, the Alaska <laughs> state bird. No, they're exactly. <laughs> they're bearable. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us in the lower forty-eight, you know, you don't you don't think of Alaska as being so big. You know, you you're aware of it being hung up off there off the continent, but you know, when you look at it, it's really the it's really like half to two thirds the size of the of the continental United States. You know, down yeah, it's down the lower it, forty-eight. It is a massive piece of land. It's it's pretty crazy how big it is, um, and people don't realize that because it's always on a school map or whatever kind of disconnected and they shrink it down because they have to put it on the map, but they can't just use half the map for just Alaska. You know, they got to fit other people in there. So it is a very big state. I've, I've heard a fact before and I'm probably going to screw this up. Um, by the way, if you split Alaska in half, Texas is still the third largest state. So that's a fun fact. Um, crazy. Yeah. And then another one is if Manhattan had the same population density as Alaska, there would be three people or something on Manhattan. So that just gives you an idea of how few people are here in this area based on how much land we have. Right. It's it's pretty wild. Biotropic is a biological sports performance booster supplement created by Craig Dinkle, an Olympic trials athlete, to help him train at higher levels more efficiently in order to gain a competitive edge. All natural and safe, Biotropic packs your body with the highest grade quality of the B-sweet vitamins, offers blood support, higher oxygen-carrying capabilities, an ATP booster, and vasodilation, which delivers more healthy blood content to hardworking muscles. Craig has the credentials to back it up. He twice qualified for the Olympic trials, set four NCAA records, and earned 23 All-Americans. Today, he uses biotropics to help him train in the gym, scramble up mountains, and to prepare for a six-month thru-hike of the Continental Divide Trail. Athletes and exercise enthusiasts, check out Biotropic at biotropiclabs.com, where our listeners can get a deep discount by using the code ADVENTURE. 
Vent Gate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bent Gate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bent Gate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. If somebody was listening and thinking, you know, I've I've always wanted to try flight. Um, I don't really know how to get into it or what to expect. What would you tell them? So that's a really that's a really great question because there's there's this underlying culture of aviation in the United States, especially down in the lower 48, that is very accessible to anyone that has the passion or the drive to want to do it or the curiosity to want to do it. And you'd be surprised how many little airports are speckled across the United States, airports that you never realize are really there. Um, You know, you can go on family vacation and drive through an area and you may not realize it, but you probably pass three or four airports in a 50 mile span. So it's, it's this, it's this large, healthy underlying culture of aviation that is there it's present but it's only present for those that are really curious and turn off a road for a mile to go find that airport or or have the um the courage to go up to a stranger and ask them about flying lessons a lot of these airports are typically housed by or or manned by what's called an fbo and that's a fixed based operator and typically at that location, they'll sell fuel. It'll be kind of a pilot stop. They may have a vending machine or two in there. Um, and some of them are very nice, but I'm talking about the small airport type. Uh, and typically at those locations, you'll also be able to talk to the people that own that business and ask them about people who fly or or people that can teach them to fly, flight instructors. And they can point you in the right direction if they don't already do it themselves. And so even in an area that is a rural area where you may just have a small airport where it seems like there are only a few planes out there, there's a pretty good chance that there's going to be a flight instructor there. And so what's pretty common in the industry is something called an introductory flight. And that is you saying, hey, I have curiosity in this flying thing. I want to go up for my first lesson, kind of, and see what it's all about. And so a good instructor will show you what that experience is. You'll go up on a flight. They'll make it very pleasant for you. Talk about um, 
talk about what your goals are, what your passion is, what you want to use flying for, whether that's seeking adventure, which is becoming a big part of aviation, or going into it as a career, or using it as a family travel tool, or using it as a business tool. There's so many different ways you can use aviation, and they may tailor the flight to your needs that way a little bit. But on that introductory flight, which is typically a lower rate to you know get you curious, is uh, is you actually will learn a little bit about flying, and you'll be able to control the airplane by yourself under the watchful eye of a flight instructor. And it's a right out the gate, it's a very liberating experience to be able to um, fly with someone and actually control an airplane and realize, hey, I can actually in the sky go where I want to go. And the big key phrase here and the big saying that I like to use a lot, and I'm not sure who used it first, but the the quote is, a mile of runway can take you anywhere. And in aviation, that's definitely true. If you think about even family vacation, think about how amazing it is to be able to get on an airplane and say, I want to go to Europe, or I want to go to Africa, or I want to go to Des Moines, Iowa. I mean, in what point in human history have we been able to do something like that and be able to make choices like that? It's aviation is an amazing thing. So going back to your small local um, airport, that is typically how you can get started is you can literally go out to the airport, just start asking around and say, hey, who around here gives flying lessons? Who can I take an introductory flight for or from? And that's one of the best ways to get started. Uh, there are some initiatives out there for younger kids that may want to fly. If, if your listeners have younger kids or you have, um, teenagers listening to the show where they can get a free introductory flight through a program called young Eagles. And that's through, uh, an organization called EAA or experimental aircraft association. And they can get hooked up with something like that. And it, it gives them their first instructive flight hour toward their license. They even get a little logbook and everything. So the aviation community is definitely engaged and excited about new pilots coming in. Um, in terms of adventure, I mean, I could talk all day about the opportunities that aviation allows you to get to places to seek adventure. Um, it's pretty amazing. Again, a mile of runway can go anywhere. And, uh, and yeah, that's the typical story is just being able to Go to your local airport and ask. It, it, it takes a little bit of courage, but that's all it takes. Right, right. Yeah, I love that saying, a mile of runway can take you anywhere. It's so true. You know, you, as soon as you get those wheels off the ground, you're, you're point A to point B. You don't have to deal with terrain and traffic and, you mm -hmm. know, all of the things that we have to deal with when we're four wheels on a highway. Um, you can just get up there and, and be free, you know, so to speak. And there, you so, know, there's a place for the four wheels too. I want to say that, but <laughs> imagine if you had, if you went on a family vacation, okay, you went on a family vacation to Orlando, Florida, Florida is a pretty big place and you wanted to go down to the keys, um, as part of your vacation, but you start to figure that in with, with what it would take with a car and you know, like driving down there like six hours. And that's just to the start of the keys. Then you actually got to like drive the keys but if you had an airplane, if you could hit the ground in Orlando and say, okay, I rode the airlines all the way from Alaska. Now I'm in Orlando and now I'm going to jump in a small airplane with my family and we're going to fly down to the Keys. We'll be there in two hours and then we'll start to experience it that way. And you might even rent a car when you get there. But 
you can stretch your legs even on a family vacation like that. Or, or you can say, okay, I'm going to fly into a major airport and I myself, I'm going to, you know, jump in a Cessna 172. I know how to fly it. I am allowed to rent it with this particular place. And I'm going to take my hiking backpack. I'm going to fly up in the mountains into this airport and I'm going to go conquer this peak that I haven't, you know, done before or that I've been wanting to do. And, and that's something that's totally doable too. Um, so thinking outside the box, you know, where can aviation get me? That's something that I've learned a whole lot here in Alaska is guys up here, they fly anywhere. I mean, there are so many lakes and so many riverbeds and all that sort of thing that there, there are very few places an airplane can't get you in Alaska. And so it's really opened up my eyes to what does that even mean to flying in the lower 48? And, and while I flew down there a whole lot, that was never my mentality. My mentality wasn't, oh, let's go on vacation, then spread our wings from there. Um, it was always, let's go there and experience that. And while that's still good, there's just that extra little twist on what aviation can do for you that I think is pretty cool. So I just thought I'd add that in there. Yeah, no, I get it. Well, if somebody were motivated, um, you know, and wanted to knock it out quickly, what kind of time expectation uh, should they have and what kind of uh, expense expectation should they have? And I know expense can vary, obviously, depending on what part of the world you're in, but uh, ballpark, you know, what do you think? Yeah, these are always, there are always three major holdbacks to people getting a pilot license. And it is a commitment in all three. And if you're not committed and, and you don't have the ability to do it, then I I wouldn't say don't do it, but twist things around and figure it out um, to, to get it to work. So those three are time, money, and health. Uh, a lot of people don't fly because of health reasons. It, they, they think that because they have X illness or they can't see perfectly or whatever it is that they can't fly. And let me just tell you right out the gate, that's not true. You'd be surprised what um, what medical things you can get by with in aviation. Now, there's at least has been uh, a process for doing that that is a little bit more painful and does take more time, but you eventually can get the ability to fly and the blessing to fly even from the FAA and from the authorities. And even if you can't go that direction, you can get a sport pilot's license, which only requires um, a driver's license for your medical, which kind of takes that part of it away. And not only that, there was just new, uh, a, a, the pilot's bill of rights too, they call it, that will allow those type of pilots for a private pilot to fly with with essentially just a driver's license. So that's a big victory for the aviation community to try to get rid of some of that health barrier. In terms of financial commitment, on average, it's going to take about $10,000 to get your license these days. Um, that number's probably gone down a little bit just because the price of fuel has gone down a little bit. There are plenty of ways to get creative with that. Some people that are really serious about it end up um, buying a, a pretty small, cheap, yet trusty airplane before they even start their training. And and you can fly very affordably that way. Um, and then the time commitment, you know, just as with any sort of learning, especially highly technical learning or intense learning like it is to be a pilot where you're dealing with so many subject areas, the more often you fly, the better. And so if you keep up that recency in your learning 
and you cram it into a specific period of time and just really hit the books hard and you know you're you're not going into atrophy after each lesson because you're not flying for two weeks or a month. If you're flying frequently several times a week, you can really make some good headway and you save yourself money in the long run. Finding a good instructor is a part of making sure that you're, uh, you keep your costs down. But typically, pilots end up spending around $10,000 to get their license. And all of that said, both the time or all three, the time commitment, the financial commitment, and the, uh, the health side of things too. I've never known of someone to regret getting a pilot's license. I've never met someone that regretted it. It's, it's a very freeing thing to realize that you can go out to an airport and take an airplane and go anywhere you typically want. So I'll just throw that little caveat into it. It's not easy. It, again, takes a commitment in all those areas, but it's worth it. No, I totally get that. And I, you know, having a motorcycle license, I get a little taste of that, I think, you know, it's oh, because yeah. it's, it's very freeing to have a, a, a license to something that many people don't have a license to, and you're able to go out and explore and, and mm-hmm. go on long trips with it um, and feel that, that feeling that you can only get on a motorcycle. But I have to imagine that flying is, you know, that tenfold, you know, that feeling, you know, 10 times better just because you're, you're up there in the third dimension. And like we said, we're, you're point A to point B and you're, you truly are flying. I mean, everybody eventually has a flying dream at some point in their life, I would think. Yeah, definitely. And it, the cool, really cool thing and in, in what we're blessed to have in the United States is quite a robust aviation system. So there are still just so many tiny little airports wherever you go that you can really go to some cool, unique places. And there's this this uh, term in the aviation industry that people coined at one time called the $100 hamburger. And, you know, it, it's the idea that it takes $100 to put fuel in the tank and go to a small town and get a really good hamburger. You know, maybe you saw a good place on Yelp or something and you want to bump down and get something. I'm a foodie, so that appeals to me quite a bit. But... uh <laughs> that's it's really interesting once you get into aviation you realize there are a ton of these places that exist for example another place i want to go i haven't gone yet is just north of fairbanks there's a hot springs there and you can only fly in there if you're going to go to the hot springs but it's like this own little private airstrip for this hot springs in the middle of nowhere that you can only access by airplane or at least that's the the um the most reasonable way of accessing it because otherwise you're talking about a 50 mile um, snow machine ride or four wheeler ride that just, that sounds cool. It sounds like an adventure, but I like flying. So it sounds cool to also land there and then, you know, go to the hot springs. So, so many cool little experiences and adventures that you can, uh, can do just like that. You know, it, it's not pigeonholing us. Aviation isn't into this airline mentality. It's, there's this big underlying culture and this this big network of little airports where you can really access some cool places. And if you go far beyond that, where you're getting an airplane that can land off airport, say a float plane or an airplane with tundra tires, then you can start landing on river bars and go fishing. You can land on hillsides. You can land on remote lakes. So from there, you can even open it up more if you start to talk about that category. No doubt. That'd be awesome.
Hey, be sure to drop us a line at adventuresportspodcast.com. Use the contact button and let us know if you would be interested in one of our adventure sports destination meetups that Kurt had mentioned on his previous episode. We also have shirts available on the site. Just go to the adventuresportspodcast.com in the top right-hand corner and click that button. Show the people that you listen to the show while you're out on your next adventure. We also have the ASP Bookshelf. These are all books from past guests. And of course, if they're on our show, they're full of adventure. So check it out. There might be something in there you like. So on to the show. You're going to use up every possible inch of runway available. I do not blame you. Here's traffic, command 3430, Victor, depart runway 25, we'll be climbing turn out to the south, Fierce. Airspeed is alive. Back. Engine's in the green. Back. Just a little scary. Oh boy. Wow. Okay, things we are not doing again. Oh my gosh. Okay, Chris. Um, about that. Uh, I don't know, we've learned our lesson. I actually thought we were kind of screwed there for a second. So did I. Oh, do you want to go back to Paintfield or Darrington where they have a similar runway? Uh, <laughs> let's go fly over it. Maybe they won't have as many trees. Uh, let, let's, uh, let's have a look okay. first. Hey, Chris. No. Thank you for not killing me. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you about the the story that I alluded to uh, in the introduction, and that was the the scariest takeoff ever. And that's how I found you. I stumbled a, upon this thing, and it was uh, you and some friends uh, taking off. I didn't catch where the the runway was, but um, it was a, a definitely a pucker moment. And there's video of it, and you just you know I was watching the video, and I just started. I could feel my heart like kind of palpitating as <laughs> as I'm watching you guys take off. So do me a favor if you would, and and Tell us about that story. What happened there? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things I feel like you have to see it to believe it. And interestingly enough, if you search scariest takeoff ever on Google, it'll pop up. Um, so pretty simple term to search, but it'll, it'll be the top result. Believe me, you know, that's a that happened back in 2010. And it's been a video that unfortunately haunts me a little bit. I was at a, an aviation conference um, earlier this year. Um, talking to someone that I've known for a while now. And she said, I was watching this video and the, this guy almost hit trees. And then I realized I recognized the voice and it was you. It was you that almost hit the trees. And I'm like, yes, yes, I know. I've heard that before. That's, that's me. That's my video. So that was actually in Washington state. It was at a place called Mears Field. Um, it's Northwest or Northeast rather of Everett, Washington. And I had gone up there with some buddies just to to land at this airport. And on takeoff, we experienced just a lot of things that I had never considered before as a pilot. And so as you'll see in the video, those that go out and look at it, um, 
the airplane doesn't want to fly. You know, we get off the runway, but it doesn't want to climb. And we're just kind of mushing along and the trees are at the end of the runway and they're getting bigger and they're getting bigger and they're getting bigger and the trees are still above us, but we're going through them now and we lived. So it's pretty wild. It was, it was one of the most adrenaline pumping moments of my entire life. I wasn't speaking. My friends were speaking. I wasn't speaking. If you guys watch the video, I just sound like Darth Vader because I I have so much adrenaline. I'm just like trying to breathe. And, uh, and so it, it was, uh, it was an interesting situation where there were a lot of winds that were reacting with the terrain. There was a river bottom down to the left from the takeoff runway. There were walls of trees and gaps in those trees. And just as I lifted off the airplane, what was a headwind channeling down the runway and helping the airplane create more lift suddenly turned into a crosswind that at the, at the, the most um, critical moment of lifting off removed all that lift from the airplane and then it didn't really want to fly anymore. Um, and one of the most dangerous things a pilot can do and what you're, what's drilled into you in, in training is don't stall the airplane. Cause once you stall the airplane, it's no longer, the wing is no longer producing lift. And what I, the one thing I could not do is I could not pull back in fear of hitting those trees. And so my training and instincts kicked in. It, it really wasn't a thought for me. It was more just a natural, again, instinctual reaction and I lifted off the runway. I didn't pull back. I didn't get too scared because of my training, because of my good training. And I instinctively bumped the airplane five to 10 degrees to the left. You'll see that in the video as well. Five to 10 degrees to the left. And I went through this gap in the trees, the only gap that existed. And as we went through that gap, there were still 20 feet of trees above us um, because of that. You know, that was that was an interesting time because that that was before the days of GoPro when every single pilot out there is filming their flights. Um, I had a nice camera on the dash and we were just kind of filming what we were doing for the day. And I had every right to never share that with anyone, but I decided that I wanted to do so because I wanted people to learn from it. Um, and not only that, I needed to learn from it too. So the thing went viral almost instantly. I got plenty of trolls and plenty of terrible comments telling me I was a, a bad pilot. In fact, the kid I was flying with in the right seat, he was about 15 at the time going through ground school, aviation ground school. And a couple days later, several days later in their classroom, their instructor brought up our video and he's like, here is what not to do when you're flying. And my friend oh, didn't man. say a word, you know? Um, but what I learned from that is a lot of interesting things. And I think that, I think good pilots are pilots that are humble and always trying to learn from their experiences. And so that's what I wanted for others and sharing it. And I think people that look at it with not necessarily a critical or a Monday morning quarterback eye, but look at it with an eye of maybe that's a situation I could have got myself into as well then there really is a lot to learn from it and a lot of great information. So again, you can find that by searching scariest takeoff ever. There are plenty of really great substantive comments about, um, about what transpired, about what could have been done better, 
And there was a video done by my good friend Steve Thorne at Flight Chops. He does a pretty good aviation uh, YouTube channel. He did a video on it. I think it has almost a million views now. Um, just trying to teach people about it. But so many lessons learned in that situation. So my takeaway was I need to learn more as a pilot. That's always been my mentality, but this situation didn't have to happen. What could I have done better to prevent this? And it's not that I shouldn't have been flying to a place like that. That's not the point. I don't think we should avoid things that are doable and things that are safe, you know, things that, that by the book, they should work. Um, I just think that there's this underlying uh, part of learning to fly, if you will, that is, you learn from the old timers and you surround yourself by people that can teach you important things. And I think that can go for anything, not just aviation. You know, I'd imagine if you're a rock climber or a mountaineer, you don't just go out and do things on your own. It's great to have mentors and people that teach you some things that they've learned over the years that you may never read in books, but are really the jewels of knowledge that you need to succeed at the type of, of adventure you're doing. So I, I stand by releasing that to the wild and looking like an idiot. Um, I can tell you I'm not an idiot pilot, but I'm also not Maverick from Top Gun. I'm not the best. Um, I'm somewhere in between and I'm average. And I hope that that particular video helped people learn more about their vulnerability um, learning more about those conditions. And I don't know, maybe me releasing that put a spin enough on the situation that someone learned a little bit and prevented a situation that could have killed them. I don't know. But all I know is that that's kind of the nature of the internet these days in at least in a positive way is that we can share those experiences and learn from them. And unfortunately in aviation, one of the big ways that we learn is by aircraft accidents of things not to do. Um, fortunately, I'm still here. And in that particular case, it was something that we could learn from that, uh, that the people who were there survived. So, so yeah, that's the long and short of it. Yeah. No, I think you were right to put it out there. You know, and we're not, you know, no one's born being an expert in anything. And to be completely honest, if the experts are humble enough to watch that video, I'm sure, you know, and admit to themselves that, you know, they're not experts either. There are things that, that they can mess up, obviously. Um, but I'm sure there are experts, you know, quote unquote, been flying for 30 years that could look at that video and say, you know, honestly, I've never been put in that, that wind situation that he right. was put into. And, you know, and hopefully I would pull out of it too. I mean, you did obviously react and your training kicked in. So you were, you were a good enough pilot to keep something bad from happening. Mm -hmm. you look, look at it that way. So yeah, I, you know, I watch motorcycle accident videos and some are, um, some are morbid, of course, but the reason I do it is because I want to learn what happened in a situation and think about that next time I'm passing through an intersection. You know, it's it makes you think. It's like, okay, well, you know, nobody's an expert here. You you two could be the one um, that ends up in that video. But if you give it some forethought and you're humble enough to to really think about it and you know not think that you're the expert, then you absolutely can learn stuff from videos like that. So good for you for putting it up there, obviously. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I, 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 interestingly enough, I did have some old timers that ended up chiming in on the video, guys that have been flying that particular airplane 
for like 50 years and they told me exactly what I should have done. Interestingly enough, it was counterintuitive to what I was taught in my training in just some specific procedural ways. And, uh, and yeah, they, these old timers had just this better knowledge of the airplane than even the manufacturer did. And they were things that really could have prevented any sort of pucker factor in that situation. But it was what it was. I learned a whole lot. And now that I'm in Alaska, that is my typical runway length. You know, it's like 2,500 <laughs> feet and there are always trees around and it's hardly ever paved and it's a whole lot of fun. And it, it you just learn, you know, that that's part of doing anything in adventure is, uh, is you just learn from experience and and as you learn those things and gain strength and gain that experience, you're able to do more. So, um, gosh, it's it's just it's a never-ending cycle of growth, and I think that's what makes it, to a certain extent, so much fun too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you ever stop learning and stop growing, then that's probably when you're a dead man. To be honest with you, yeah, it, it really a lot is. Of adventure sports, you know. Yeah. If you're not humble enough to to realize that you have room to grow, then then you've gotten a little bit too big for your britches and it's going to bite you eventually. So, mm-hmm. Yep, that's the truth. Okay, well, let's get into your podcast. Yeah, I haven't even brought that up yet. And if uh, you listeners, if you guys are out there, you know, thinking, yeah, you know, flight, I really do like flight and I'd be interested in getting more information. Um, Chris holds, uh, hosts a podcast uh, all about this stuff. So you definitely probably want to go over and check that out. So let's talk about your podcast. It's called Aviator Cast. And mm-hmm. as well as uh, what you do for a living, we got into that a little bit, but uh, give us a little bit more of a, a feel for what it is Angle of Attack does. Sure. So the podcast, again, Aviator Cast, pretty simple to remember. Um, and the reason I'll, I'll tell you this little nugget, and I'm not sure I even tell people on the podcast this, but the reason it's called aviator cast and not pilot cast is because I think there's a difference between pilots and aviators. And it does go back to the spirit of aviation and adventure. When I think of an aviator, I think of Charles Lindbergh and I think of these pioneers in aviation that didn't have this huge support system. They didn't have iPads. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have all these crazy things, but these guys were excellent at what they did. And I think to a certain extent that's been lost in aviation, but I don't think it's impossible to get back. And so I'm huge on the whole aviator thing because just like with my experience almost running into those trees in Washington, I had these old timers come in and tell me this great information that would have prevented that situation for forever in the future in that particular airplane and really opened my eyes in a lot of different ways. So there's a reason it's called Aviator Cast. Um, what Aviator Cast is, is I try to do it weekly, but I'm, I'm not that religious about it, unfortunately. I have a lot of other things going on. But we're almost to, let's see, I just did episode 91. And we, we talk about the inspiration and the passion for flying. And so we not only touch on a lot of different topics of how to be a better pilot or how to open your eyes as a pilot, we interview a lot of people kind of like what you guys you and I are doing here today in talking to other inspiring aviators so just to give you a, a recent example is I went to a big air show called Oshkosh in Wisconsin um, biggest private air show in the world meaning private aviation 500,000 attendees just massive um, there I met a crew for the SR-71 Blackbird, 
And if you guys don't know what that is, it's a pretty iconic airplane. But if you don't know what that is, it's the big, long, black airplane with two huge engines. And this thing goes over Mach 3. And uh, and I, I interviewed this crew that had been a crew together for six years. And they never fly with anyone else because it's... It's almost like a monogamous relationship. They they mm-hmm. don't fly with anyone else. It's just it's just the pilot and their navigator, and that's who they are. So I sat down with these guys and you know got a little taste of history for my listeners, and not only not only uh, learned about their experiences, but also asked them about you know what should people who want to get into aviation do? What should they do to prepare those sort of questions that can really help really anyone in their aviation journey, no matter where they are, whether you're a young teenager that, you know, and you're not quite at the age of being able to fly yet, but you still could fly if, if it made sense uh, monetarily with your family and things, those that are just starting to get into it to make a career run at it, say in, in college, those that are uh, middle-aged and you just got enough disposable income that it makes sense now that you can get after it. I try to make it general enough that we can approach it from all groups. But interestingly enough, um, I interviewed this crew, very unique and cool experience to do in, in a location like this. And I have a number of podcasts that are like this from really great, wonderful people. This is just a recent one. So not only did I interview these guys, but this pilot of this SR-71 Blackbird Going back to your question, Travis, about how does someone get started if they want to do this, this pilot is a flight instructor in McKinney, Texas. So if anyone is listening from McKinney, Texas, you can literally go down to the airport and talk to this guy that flew the SR-71 on top-secret CIA missions going Mach 3 at 80,000 feet where not only even the missiles could reach him, and uh, you can get flight instruction from him. So... Those are the sort of things we talk about. It's it's really all about aviation passion. We don't get into too much more heady stuff than that. Um, not too much curriculum. The last podcast I did was the six focus points or the six things, big things I've been working on this summer in Alaska. So I talk about some of the unique experiences and some of the unique growth that I'm going through as a pilot and the differences of flying up here. So those are the sort of topics we're, uh, we're often sharing in AviatorCast or at least stuff in that vein. In terms of what Angle of Attack does, Angle of Attack is a media company. At the core of that media is video. I, we really love video. If you remember me talking about building those World War II models and uh, packing them full of firecrackers and blowing them up, that was the start of my video career, if you will. So <laughs> who knew? I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I had this pilot thing going on, this love for aviation, but I also had this video thing going on. I did really well in video in high school. Um, ended up getting some awards and things with, uh, with some organizations like uh, the football team. I, I made the football team look really good, even though they went like two and eight. Um, so I, I did a lot of video in high school, but then kind of dropped that to do the the flight thing, but then kind of brought it all together in this media company called Angle of Attack, which is still what I do today. We started off um, doing flight simulator training back in the day where um, we would teach people how to fly specific airplanes in flight simulators. So we actually did um, training courses on the 777 and the 737, very comprehensive, in-depth 
such great courses that real pilots use them. Um, even though they're not, they're not accredited, real pilots use them to get ready for their training. Uh, and then more recently, I've been taking the company more uh, a professional direction where I'm getting into training actual pilots. So we're working with some companies that um, that are in in real aviation and uh, and need pilot training, and we're doing that on a high level with video and web and some other things. So yeah, I mean, at the core of what I do, I'm I, I believe that learning visually is one of the best ways, and you guys have seen all of the courses on uh, on Facebook and stuff. Facebook ads are always throwing video courses and how to become a billionaire overnight with your membership website. I don't know if anyone else gets those dumb ads on Facebook, but <laughs> I get them all the time. Um, so. So video is a great way to learn in other words. And, and I think especially with flying where a lot of it is explained more visually when you see how the airplane is moving and you see the effects of certain things that can speak a thousand words and it's just a very effective and fun way to learn. And I feel like we do a pretty good job of it and, and uh, we're pretty cutting edge that way. So that's what I, that's what I do professionally, but there's also the fun side, like Aviator Cast, which is just something I do for the community to stay connected, to do something cool, to inspire people to get into it. There's um, my Instagram, which I've taken pretty seriously recently to the to the extent that I literally set an alarm clock to get up and post my post for the day in the morning at like six. Um, oh, that's impressive. Yeah, but that's when people <laughs> are following me, and that, you that's know true. that that's how it's going to grow. So. Um, but but I have a lot of fun with that because I can just walk a few yards down the road here, literally right behind my office, and take pictures or video of float planes that are coming and going. Um, it's literally right, right there. My office address is on seaplane court. I mean, I'm right there. So it's really cool stuff. I, I try to to capture that and also capture the flying experiences, some of which I've talked about today, flying over glaciers, flying over to Port Allsworth and, and going to see the bears. You'll see pictures of that stuff in there and um, some video as well. And just really enjoy it. You know, I, I again have the professional side, but also the, the fun side that I just try to stay connected to just because I'm passionate about it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's obvious. I've, uh, I've listened to a few episodes of yours and you do a good job. So anybody out there listening, that's uh, into aviation, definitely go check out Chris's podcast. I think you'll like it. And so they can find the podcast, of course, on iTunes and Stitcher aviatorcast.com is the website that'll get you there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the website for angle of attack? So the professional side of what we do is angleofattackpro.com. If you are interested in the flight simulator stuff, that's more of the gaming type industry stuff, but you can check that out at flyaoa, standing for angle of attack, flyaoamedia.com. Kind of a terrible URL, but once you commit to it, it's hard to go back. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and then uh, again, Instagram. I mean, that's... Instagram is where I'm most active these days with even just interacting with the community. If you interact on Facebook and Twitter, I'll see you there as well. But um, those arenas are getting a little bit more crowded these days and not seeing as much interaction there. So Instagram has been a lot of fun. And of course, the professional side, AviatorCast, it's all part of one complex angle of attack puzzle that 
sometimes even I don't have figured out. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, so go find him at Angle of Attack at Instagram and check out some of the videos and awesome pictures that he puts up. So, Chris, it was a blast talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, sharing your your obvious passion for aviation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it, Travis. And if anyone wants to go fly, again, go down to your local airport, um, talk to someone or write me. I'll find someone locally to where you are and put you in touch. It's it's a great way to get out there and experience adventure, experience life, experience freedom, and just get a different perspective. So again, thanks, Travis. really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Well, listeners, until the next episode, get out there and try something new. Thanks, Chris. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. You have heard all the hype around paleo, low-carb, organics, diet powders, and the lot. How does one sort out what really works? Good news. Gary Collins has done the homework for you. Regain and maintain your health and live that life of vitality. Learn more at primalpowermethod.com.